0: Chapter Two of Peter the Great. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Russ Lemker. Peter the Great by Jacob Abbott. Chapter Two The Princess's Downfall, sixteen eighty four. To 1689. The Princess Sophia was now in full possession of power, so that she reigned supreme in the palaces and in the capital, while, of course, the ordinary administration of the affairs of state and the relations of the empire with foreign nations were left to Galitzin and the other ministers. It was in 1684 that she secured possession of this power and in 1689, her regency came to an end, so that she was, in fact, the ruler of the Russian Empire for a period of about five years. During this time, one or two important military expeditions were set on foot by her government. The principal was a campaign in the southern part of the empire for the conquest of the Crimea, which country, previous to that time, had belonged to the Turks. Poland was at that period a very powerful kingdom, and the Poles, having become involved in a war with the Turks, proposed to the Russians, or Muscovites, as they were then generally called, to join them in an attempt to conquer the Crimea. The Tartars who inhabited the Tr- Crimea, and the country to the northeastward of it, were on the side of the Turks, so that the Russians had two enemies to contend with the supreme ruler of the tartars was a chieftain called a cham he was a potentate of great power and dignity superior indeed to the czars who ruled in muscovy in fact there had been an ancient treaty by which this superiority of the cham was recognized and acknowledged in a singular way one which illustrates curiously the ideas and manners of those times the treaty stipulated among other things that whenever the czar and the cham should chance to meet the czar should hold the cham's stirrup while he mounted his horse and also feed the horse with oats out of his cap in the war between the muscovites and the tartars for the possession of the crimea a certain personage appears who has since been made very famous by the poetry of byron It was Mazeppa, the unfortunate chieftain whose frightful ride through the tangled thickets of an uncultivated country, bound naked to a wild horse, was described with so much graphic power by the poet, and has been so often represented in paintings and engravings. Mazeppa was a Polish gentleman. He was brought up as a page in the family of the King of Poland. When he became a man, he mortally offended a certain Polish nobleman by some improprieties in which he became involved with the nobleman's wife. The husband caused him to be seized and cruelly scourged, and then to be bound upon the back of a wild, ungovernable horse. When all was ready, the horse was turned loose upon the Ukraine, and terrified with the extraordinary burden which he felt upon his back, and uncontrolled by bit or rein. He rushed madly on through the wildest recesses of the forest, until at length he fell down, exhausted with terror and fatigue. Some Cossack peasants found and rescued Mazeppa, and took care of him in one of their huts until he recovered from his wounds. Mazeppa was a well educated man and highly accomplished in the arts of war, as they were practiced in those days he soon acquired great popularity among the cossacks and in the end rose to be a chieftain among them and he distinguished himself greatly in these very campaigns in the crimea fought by the muscovites against the turks and tartars during the regency of princess sophia if the war thus waged by the government of the empress had been successful it would have greatly strengthened the position of her party in moscow and increased her own power. But it was not successful. Prince Gelitsyn, who had the chief command of the expedition, was obliged, after all, to withdraw his troops from the country, and make a very unsatisfactory peace. But he did not dare to allow the true result of the expedition to be known in Moscow, for fear of the dissatisfaction which, he felt convinced, would be occasioned there by such intelligence and the distance was so great, and the means of communication in those days were so few, that it was comparatively easy to falsify the accounts. So, after he had made peace with the Tartars, and began to draw off his army, he sent couriers to Moscow, to the Tsars, and also to the King of Poland, with news of great victories which he had obtained against the Tartars, of conquest which he made in their territories, and of his finally having compelled them to make peace on terms, extremely favorable. The Princess Sophia, as soon as this news reached her in Moscow, ordered that arrangements should be made for great public rejoicings throughout the empire on account of the victories which had been obtained. According to the custom, too, of the Muscovite government, in cases where great victories had been won, THE COUNCIL DREW UP A FORMAL LETTER OF THANKS AND COMMENDATIONS TO THE OFFICERS AND SOLDIERS OF THE ARMY, AND SENT IT TO THEM BY SPECIAL MESSENGER, WITH PROMOTIONS AND OTHER HONORS FOR THE CHIEFS, AND REWARDS IN MONEY FOR THE MEN. THE PRINCESS AND HER GOVERNMENT HOPED BY THESE MEANS TO CONCEAL THE BAD SUCCESS OF THEIR ENTERPRISE, AND TO GAIN, INSTEAD OF LOSING, CREDIT AND STRENGTH WITH THE PEOPLE. But during all this time a party opposed to Sophia and her plans had been gradually forming, and it was now increasing in numbers and influence every day. The men of this party naturally gathered around Peter, intending to make him their leader. Peter had now grown up to be a young man. In the next chapter we shall give some account of the manner in which his childhood and early youth were spent, but he was now about eighteen years old and the party who adhered to him formed the plan of marrying him, so they proceeded to choose him a wife. The reasons which led them to advocate this measure were, of course, altogether political. They thought that if Peter were to be married and to have children, all the world would see that the crown must necessarily descend in his family, since John had no children and he was so sickly and so feeble it was not probable that even he himself would long survive they knew very well therefore that the marriage of peter and the birth of an heir would turn all men's thoughts to him as the real personage in whose favour it behooved them to cultivate and this they supposed would greatly increase his importance and so add to the strength of the party that had acted in his name it turned out, just as they had anticipated, the wife whom the counsellors chose for Peter was a young lady of noble birth, the daughter of one of their great boyars, as they were called, of the empire. Her name was Atacessa Federona. The princess Sophia did all in her power to prevent the match, but her efforts were of no avail. Peter was married and the event greatly increased his importance among the nobles and among the people and augmented the power and influence of his party in all cases of this kind where a contest is going on between rival claimants to a throne or rival dynasties there are some persons though not many who are governed in their conduct in respect to the side in which they take by principles of honour and duty and of faithful adherence to what they suppose to be the right. But a vast majority of couriers and politicians in all countries and in all ages are only anxious to find out not which side is right, but which is likely to be successful. Accordingly, in this case, as the marriage of Peter made it still more probable than it was before, that he would in the end secure to his branch of the family the supreme power, It greatly increased the tendency among the nobles to pay their court to him and to his friends. This tendency was still more strengthened by the expectation which soon after arose that Peter's wife was about to give birth to a son. The probability of the appearance of a son and heir on Peter's side, taken in connection with the hopeless childlessness of John, seemed to turn the scales entirely in favor of Peter's party this was especially the case in respect to all the young nobles as they successfully arrived at an age to take an interest in public affairs all these young men seemed to despise the imbecility and the dark and uncertain prospects of john and to be greatly charmed with the talents and energy of peter and with the brilliant future which seemed to be opening before him Thus even the nobles who still adhered to the cause of Sophia and of John had the mortification to find that their sons, as fast as they came of age, all went over to the other side. Peter lived at this time with his young wife at a certain country palace belonging to him, situated on the banks of a small river a few miles from Moscow. The name of this country seat was Obrogensko such was the state of things at moscow when prince galitzin returned from his campaigns in the crimea the prince found that the power of sophia and her party was rapidly waning and that sophia herself was in a state of great anxiety and excitement in respect to the future the princess gave galitzin a very splendid reception and publicly rewarded him for his pretended success in the war by bestowing upon him great and extraordinary honors. Still many people were very suspicious of the truth of the accounts which were circulated. The partisans of Peter called for proofs that the victories had really been won. Prince Galitzin brought with him to the capital a considerable force of Cossacks with Mazeppa at their head. The Cossacks had never before been allowed to come into Moscow, but now Sofia having formed a desperate plan to save herself from the dangers that surrounded her, and, knowing that these men would unscrupulously execute any commands that were given to them by their leaders, directed Galitzin to bring them within the walls under pretense to do honor to Mazeppa for the important services which he had rendered during the war. But this measure was very unpopular with the people, and, although the Cossacks were actually brought within the city walls, They were subjected to such restrictions there that, after all, Sophia could not employ them for the purpose of executing her plot, but was obliged to rely on the regular Muscovite troops of the imperial guard. The plot which she formed was nothing else than the assassination of Peter. She saw no other way by which she could save herself from the dangers which surrounded her, and make sure of retaining her power her brother the czar john was growing weaker and more insignificant every day while peter and his party who looked upon her she knew with very unfriendly feelings were growing stronger and stronger if peter continued to live her speedy downfall she was convinced was sure she accordingly determined that peter should die THE COMMANDER-IN-CHIEF OF THE GUARDS AT THIS TIME WAS A MAN NAMED THEODORE THICALAVITAR. HE HAD BEEN RAISED TO THIS EXALTED POST BY Sophia HERSELF ON THE DEATH OF Kovansky. SHE HAD SELECTED HIM FOR THIS OFFICE WITH SPECIAL REFERENCE TO HIS SUBSERVIENCY TO HER INTERESTS. SHE DETERMINED NOW ACCORDINGLY TO CONFIDE TO HIM THE EXECUTION OF HER SCHEME FOR THE ASSASSINATION OF PETER when sophia proposed her plan to prince galitzin he was at first strongly opposed to it on account of the desperate danger which would attend such an undertaking but she urged upon him so earnestly the necessity of the case representing to him that unless some very decisive measures were adopted not only would she herself soon be deposed from power but that he and all his family and friends would be involved in the same common ruin he at length reluctantly consented. The plan was at last fully matured. Thekelavatar, the commander of the guards, selected six hundred men to go with him to Obregensko. They were to go in the night, the plan being to seize Peter in his bed. When the appointed night arrived, the commander marshaled his men and gave them their instructions, and while the whole body set out upon their march to Obregensko, with every prospect of successfully accomplishing the undertaking. But the whole plan was defeated in a very remarkable manner. While the commander was giving his instructions to the men, two of the soldiers, shocked with the idea of being made the instruments of such a crime, stole away unobserved in the darkness, and ran with all possible speed to Obregensko to warn Peter of his danger. Peter leaped from his bed in consternation and immediately sent to the apartments where his uncles, the brothers of his mother, were lodging, to summon them to come with him. When they came, a hurried consultation was held. There was some doubt in the minds of Peter's uncles whether the story which the soldiers told was to be believed. They thought it could not possibly be true that so atrocious a crime could be contemplated by Sophia. Accordingly, before taking any measures for sending Peter and his family away, they determined to send messengers toward the city to ascertain whether any detachment of guards was really coming toward Obregenzko. These messengers set off at once, but before they had reached halfway to Moscow, they met Thekalavito's detachment of guards, with Thekalavita himself at the head of them, stealing furtively along the road the messengers hid themselves by the wayside until the troop had gone by then hurrying away around by a circuitous path they got before the troop again and reached the palace before the assassins arrived peter had just time to get into a coach with his wife his sister and one or two other members of his family and to drive away from the palace before Thecalavitar with his band arrived the sentinels who were on duty at the gates of the palace had been much surprised at the sudden departure of Peter and his family, and now they were astonished beyond measure at the sudden appearance of so large a body of their comrades, arriving at midnight without any warning, from the barracks in Moscow. Immediately on his arrival at the palace, Thekalavatov's men searched everywhere for Peter, but of course could not find him. They then questioned the sentinels, and were told that Peter had left the palace with his family, in a very hurried manner, but a very short time before. No one knew where they had gone. There was, of course, nothing now for Thekelavatar to do but to return discomfited and alarmed to Princess Sophia and report the failure of their scheme. In the meantime, Peter had fled to the monastery of the Trinity, the common refuge of the family in all cases of desperate danger. The news of the affair spread rapidly and produced universal excitement. Peter, from his retreat in the monastery, sent a message to Sophia, charging her with having sent Thekalavatar and his band to take his life. Sophia was greatly alarmed at the turn which things had taken. She, however, strenuously denied being guilty of the charge which Peter made against her. She said that the soldiers under Thekalavatar had only gone out to Obregensko for the purpose of relieving the guard. This nobody believed. The idea of taking such a body of men a league or more into the country at midnight for the purpose of relieving the guard of a country palace was preposterous. The excitement increased. The leading nobles of the country began to flock to the monastery to declare their adhesion to Peter and their determination to sustain and protect him. Sophia at the same time did all that she could do to rally her friends both sides endeavored to gain the goodwill of the guards the princess caused them to be assembled before her palace in moscow and there she appeared on a balcony before them accompanied by the czar john and the czar made them a speech one doubtless which sophia had prepared for him in this speech john stated to the guards that his brother peter had retired to the monastery of the trinity though for what reason he knew not He had, however, too much reason to fear, he said, that he was plotting some schemes against the state. We have heard, he added, that he has summoned you to repair thither and attend him, but we forbid your going on pain of death. Sophia then addressed herself to the guards, confirming what John had said, and endeavouring artfully to awaken an interest in their minds in her favour the guards listened in silence but it seems that very little effect was produced upon them by these harangues for they immediately afterwards marched in body to the monastery and there publicly assured peter of their adhesion to his cause sophia was now greatly alarmed she began to fear that all was lost she determined to send an embassage to peter to deprecate his displeasure and if possible effect a reconciliation she employed on this commission two of her aunts her father's sisters who were of course the aunts likewise of peter and the nearest family relatives who were equally the relatives of herself and of him these ladies were of course princesses of a very high rank and their age and family connection were such as to lead sophia to trust a great deal to their intercession She charged these ladies to assure Peter that she was entirely innocent of the crime of which she was suspected, and that the stories of her having sent the soldiers to his palace with any evil design were fabricated by her enemies, who wished to sow dissension between herself and him. She assured him that there had been no necessity at all for his flight, and that he might now at any time return to Moscow with perfect safety peter received his aunts in a very respectful manner and listened attentively to what they had to say but after they had concluded their address to him he assured them that his retreat to the monastery was not without good cause and he proceeded to state and explain all the circumstances of the case and to show so many and such conclusive proofs that a conspiracy to destroy him had actually been formed, and was on the eve of being executed, that the princesses could no longer doubt that Sophia was really guilty. They were overwhelmed with grief in coming to this conviction, and they declared with tears in their eyes that they would not return to Moscow, but would remain at the monastery and share the fortunes of their nephew when sophia learned what had been the result of her deputation she was more alarmed than ever after spending some time in perplexity and distress she determined to apply to the patriarch who was the head of the church and of course the highest ecclesiastical dignitary in the empire she begged and implored him to act as mediator between her and her brother and he was at length so moved by her tears and entreaties that he consented to go this embassage was no more successful than the other peter it seems was provided with proof which he offered to the patriarch not only of the reality of the conspiracy which had been formed but also of the fact that if it had been successful the patriarch himself was to have been taken off in order that another ecclesiastic more devoted to sophia's interests might be put in his place The patriarch was astonished and shocked at this intelligence, and was so much alarmed by it that he did not dare to return to Sofia to make his report, and decided, as the ladies had done before him, to take up his abode with Peter at the monastery until the crisis could be passed. The princess was now almost in a state of despair. Prince Galitzin, it is true, still remained with her, and there were some others in the palace who adhered to her cause she called these few remaining friends together and with them held a sorrowful and anxious consultation in order to determine what should now be done it was resolved that thekalavita and one or two others who were deeply implicated in the plot for the assassination of peter should be secured in a place of close concealment in the palace and then that the princess herself accompanied by galitzin and her other leading friends should proceed in a body to the monastery of the trinity and there make a personal appeal to peter in the hopes of appeasing him and saving themselves if possible from their impending fate this plan they proceeded to carry into effect but before sophia and those who were with her had reached half-way to the palace they were met by a nobleman who had been sent from the monastery to intercept them and order them in Peter's name to return to Moscow. If the princess were to go on, she would not be received at the monastery, the messenger said, but would find the gates closed against her. So Sophia and her train turned and despairingly retraced their steps to Moscow the next day an officer at the head of a body of the guards three hundred in number was dispatched from the monastery to demand of the princess sophia at her palace that she should give up thekalavatar in order that he might be brought to trial on a charge of treason sophia was extremely unwilling to comply with this demand she may naturally be supposed to have desired to save her instrument and agent from suffering the penalties of the crime which she herself had planned and had instigated him to attempt, but the chief source of her extreme reluctance to surrender the prisoner was her fear of the revelations which he would be likely to make, implicating her. After hesitating for a time, being in a state during the interval of great mental distress and anguish, she concluded that she must obey, and so Thekelevatar was brought out from his retreat and surrendered. The soldiers immediately took him and some other persons who were surrendered with him, and, securing them safely with irons, they conveyed them rapidly to the monastery. Thickelavita was brought to trial in the great hall of the monastery, where a court consisting of the leading nobles was organized to hear his cause. He was questioned closely by his judges for a long time, but his answers were evasive and unsatisfactory, and at length it was determined to put him to torture, in order to compel him to confess his crime and to reveal the names of his confederates. This was a very unjust and cruel mode of procedure, but it was in accordance with the rude ideas which prevailed in those times. The torture which was applied to Thekalavatar was scourging with a knout. The knout was a large and strong whip, the lash of which consists of a tough, thick thong of leather, Prepared in a particular way, so as greatly to increase the intensity of the agony caused by the blows inflicted with it. Theklavatah endured a few strokes from this dreadful instrument, and then declared that he was ready to confess all. So they took him back to prison, and there heard what he had to say. He made a full statement in respect to the plot. He said that the design was to kill Peter himself, his mother, and several other persons near connections of peter's branch of the family the princess sophia was the originator of the plot he said and he specified many other persons who had taken a leading part in it these statements of the unhappy sufferer may have been true or they may have been false it is now well known that no reliance whatever can be placed upon testimony that is extorted in this way as men under such circumstances will say anything which they think will be received by their tormentors, and be the means of bringing their sufferings to an end. However it may have been, in fact, this case, the testimony of Thekelavatar was believed. On the faith of it, many more arrests were made, and many other persons were put to the torture to compel them to reveal additional particulars of the plot. It is said that one of the modes of torment of the sufferers in these trials consisted in first shaving the head, and tying it in a fixed position, and then causing boiling water to be poured drop by drop upon it, which in a very short time produced, it is said, an exquisite and dreadful agony which no mortal heroism could long endure. After all these extorted confessions had been received, and the persons accused by the wretched witnesses had been secured, the court was employed two days in determining the relative guilt of the different criminals, and in deciding upon the punishments. Some of the prisoners were beheaded, others were sentenced to perpetual imprisonment, others were banished. The punishment of Prince Galitsyn was banishment for life to Siberia he was brought before the court to hear his sentence pronounced by the judges in form. It was to this effect, namely, that he was ordered to go to Karga, a town under the pole, there to remain as long as he lived, in disgrace with his majesty, who had, nevertheless of his great goodness, allowed him threepence a day for his subsistence, but that his justice had ordained all his goods to be forfeited to his treasury." Galitzin had a son who seems to have been implicated in some way with his father in the conspiracy. At any rate, he was sentenced to share his father's fate. Whether the companionship of his son on the long and gloomy journey was a comfort to the prince, or whether it only redoubled the bitterness of his calamity to see his son compelled to endure it, too, it would be difficult to say. The female members of the family were sent with them, too. As soon as the prince had been sent away... Officers were dispatched to take possession of his palace and to make an inventory of the property contained in it. The officers found a vast amount of treasure. Among other things, they discovered a strong box buried in a vault, which contained an immense sum of money. There were four hundred vessels of silver of great weight, and many other rich and costly articles. All these things were confiscated, and the proceeds put into the imperial treasury." Thekilavatar, the commander-in-chief of the guards, had his head cut off. The subordinate officer, who had the immediate command of the detachment which marched out to Obregensko, was punished by being first scourged with the knout, then having his tongue cut out, and then being sent to Siberia, in perpetual banishment, with an allowance for his subsistence of one-third the pittance which had been granted to Galitsyn some of the private soldiers of the detachment were also sentenced to have their tongues cut out and then to be sent to siberia to earn their living there by hunting sables peter was not willing that the princess sophia being his sister should be publicly punished or openly disgraced in any way so it was decreed that she should retire to a certain convent situated in a solitary place a little way out of town where she could and would be closely watched and guarded. Sophia was extremely unwilling to obey this decree, and she would not go to the convent of her own accord. The commander of the guards was thereupon directed to send a body of armed men to convey her there, with orders to take her by force if she would not go willingly. So Sophia was compelled to submit, and, when she was lodged in the convent, soldiers were placed not only to keep sentinel at the doors, but also to guard all the avenues leading to the place, so as to effectually cut the poor prisoner off from all possible communication with any who might be disposed to sympathize with her or aid her. She remained in this condition a close prisoner for many years. Two days after this, everything connected with the conspiracy having been settled, it was determined that Peter should return to Moscow, he made a grand triumphant entry into the city attended by an armed escort of eighteen thousand of the guards peter himself rode conspicuously at the head of the troops on horseback his wife and his mother followed in a coach on arriving at the royal palace he was met on the staircase by his brother john who was not supposed to have taken any part in sophia's conspiracy Peter greeted his brother kindly, and said he hoped that they were friends. John replied in the same spirit, and so the two brothers were reinstated again as joint possessors, nominally, of the supreme power. But now that Sophia was removed out of the way, and all her leading friends and partisans were either beheaded or banished, the whole control of the government fell, in fact, into the hands of Peter and of his counsellors and friends." John, his brother, the Tsar, was too feeble and inefficient to take any part whatever in the management of public affairs. He was melancholy and dejected in spirit, in consequence of his infirmities and sufferings, and he spent most of his time in acts of devotion, according to the rites and usages of the established church of the country, as the best means within his knowledge of preparing himself for another and happier world. He died about seven years after this time. The Princess Sophia lived for another fifteen years as a prisoner. During this period, several efforts were made by those who still adhered to her cause to effect her release and her restoration to power, but they were all unsuccessful. She remained in close confinement as long as she lived. End of chapter 2 Recording by Russ Lemker of Edina, Minnesota